I'm going to try something tonight that I don't normally do. I'm going to use my iPad. If you know me and electronic devices, that often, just like right there, it just goes dark on me. My whole life's that way. That's why I always print out my notes and bring them. I did not print them out tonight. So if I have to keep swiping on this thing, I won't use it again. Take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, which was uh, that song, that song was built uh, off of Psalm 8, obviously. I'm, I'm going to be talking about this psalm. I, I don't know who it was. I don't remember who it was that requested this psalm. But I want to say thank you because this is one of the psalms that uh, I was hoping somebody would request and that we would spend some time with it. But if I don't get through the psalm tonight, then uh, I, I will plan to, to work on it um, again next Sunday evening. Uh, Brother Bill Blankenship is supposed to be speaking next Sunday evening. I'm going to be here, but he's going to be teaching Psalm 16. But I don't think he'll be angry with me if I have to bump him one week later uh, to teach Psalm 16. But I'm hoping maybe we'll be able to finish this psalm uh, this evening. The reason I say that is because before we even get to the psalm, I want to do some things that just maybe need to be said and and maybe I need to uh, make clear as as we talk about this psalm. This is a creation psalm. This is a psalm that deals with God the creator. And it shows God and all his his majesty and all, all of his power and his wonder. And it makes mankind see how infinitesimally small he is in comparison to God. And the result is supposed to be from the psalm that then you turn to God and you depend on God and you rely on God, that God would even pay attention to us and see us and care about us and love us uh, is an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, A God that is so great could pay pay attention to something that is so infinitesimally small in this world. And, And this psalm has a lot to say about creation, but You know, we need to begin by just talking a little bit about creation and the importance of creation. Um, I make a lot of declarative statements when I'm preaching. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, Preaching has changed a lot over the years. If you were to study, uh, you know, preaching today, probably would end up, you'd end up sounding different than I sound when I preach. Uh, Preaching is not as declarative today as it used to be in many, in many areas. By declarative, I mean, you know, this is what God says. This is the truth, and we're not bending on the truth. We're going to stand for the truth. Today, preaching is more conversational. It's more storytelling. Uh, it's, and I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying it's different. Uh, it's different, and the result of that is that a lot of times people don't hear declarative statements about things that they ought to hear declarative statements about. Uh, for instance, um, you know, if you watched the news this past week, uh, you saw our vice president sitting at some kind of a meeting in, in a blue suit, if you remember that. And uh, she introduced herself as uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris. Uh, my personal pronouns are her, she, and her. Uh, I am a woman, and I'm in a blue suit. And I watched that, and I saw that, and I I think to myself, how evil and how wicked is such a thinking that goes like that? And that's a declarative statement. In today's world, where it's very postmodernist, and uh, you know, people don't make declarative statements, everybody has their own truth, and everybody's entitled to their own truth, and you can believe whatever you want to believe, and everybody's beliefs are all equal, and everybody's the same. When somebody comes and makes a declarative truth, then it sort of ruffles people's feathers and uh, 
Trust me, I have ruffled a number of feathers over the year. Not intentionally, but because I believe that there needs to be declarative truth. Uh, For instance, um, you know, a couple comes and says, we want to get married. My first question to a couple that wants to get married is, tell me when you were saved and when you were baptized. That's the first question I want to know. Most of these couples that come to me already know the answer to that. They're already saved, and I know when they were baptized. Some of them I baptized myself. But when were you saved and when were you baptized? Why why would you ask that question? Because 2 Corinthians 6 says we're not to be unequally yoked together. And I take very seriously the command that is given, and I make declarative statements. If you're coming to me and you're asking me to marry you to an unbeliever, I'm going to say no. That's a declarative statement. I've made young people mad at me because... You know, that's not kind. That's not gentle. I don't say it quite like I'm saying it right this moment. Uh, but, you know, that's not kind. That's not gentle. That's not considerate. They might come to Christ if you just open the door. Yeah, but I can't violate the Scripture in order to, you know, hope that they will one day come, come to Christ. And so they get upset and they get, they get angry sometimes. And their families get angry. They have over the years. Not everybody, very few, but occasionally somebody get upset and get angry. But you have to give declarative truth. That's, the, that's what the Scripture says. We're not to be unequally yoked together. Did you know the Bible says that a believer that is walking in a fashion that is dishonorable to the Lord, I'm talking about something that is serious and affects the church. Did you know that the Bible says that you are to withdraw from that believer? Just keep your place here in, in, in Psalm 8. This is why I'm not sure if I'll get all the way to Psalm. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Just, just look at it. We're going to look at one of three or four different passages uh, that I could take you to. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, notice what it says. Um, Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9. He's talking here about the young man who's sleeping with his father's wife. It's his stepmother, but it's his father's wife. And they're letting it go on in the Corinthian church and Uh, The Apostle Paul was a declarative kind of person, don't you think? And he declared it to be sin, and he said, you better deal with this. Uh, And they ultimately do deal with it. But you notice verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then... You would need to go out of the world. So hear, hear what he's saying? I'm not telling you to isolate yourself from everybody. It's understandable. Somebody who's in the world that doesn't know Jesus Christ is going to be somebody that they don't have any other means by which to know the right way to live. They're living by their senses. They're living by what's the moral of the day, what the morals of the day may be. But those of you who are believers in Jesus, those of you who have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, those of you who have the scriptures to guide you, There's no excuse for that kind of living. You notice what he goes on to say? Verse 11, but now I've written to you not, it's the second time he says it, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard. Do I need to stop there and make a declarative statement about alcohol? Or a drunkard or an extortioner? Now listen, not even to eat with such a person. Now they're welcome to come and listen to the preaching of the word. We hope that they'll fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But when it comes time after the service to go gather a meal with somebody who's living in this kind of open, rebellious kind of sin against God, 
that's affecting the church, that impacts the church, he says, don't even go out with them down to the Dairy Queen or down to the McDonald's or down to the Wendy's or over to the Arby's. Don't, don't even go eat with them. Why? Because you hate them? No, because you have to shun that kind of behavior. It's not appropriate. It's not right in the body of Christ. Uh, Paul says in another place that there's sexual immorality. He says, don't let it even be once named among you. Uh, but that's not a popular thing to say these days. You realize that, don't you? If you say something about uh, homosexuality, you make a declarative statement. Well, don't they have a right to love who they want to love? Well, I, I guess by the laws of our land, they have a right to love who they want to love. But by God's word, uh, the, the scripture defines what a man is and what a woman is. And you don't get to redefine it. And this really would be a good thing if everybody in our church who's a scientist and who knows the facts of, of uh, your, your DNA, it'd really be nice if all of you would stand up and say, that's craziness. You are either born a man or you are born a woman. You are not born something, and you'll find out later on. Those are declarative statements. Do you get my point? Those are declarative statements. Well, in the process of, you know, 40 years, almost 40 years of declarative statements, you know, sometimes I've made people upset with me. And I don't intend to do that. Uh, I don't intend to make anybody angry with me, but I, I sometimes do. And uh, I try to soften when I'm with them. I try to soften not, not, not the message, but I try to, you know, be kind to them and help them to understand why you have to proclaim the truth of the Word of God that way. As a matter of fact, I think that's part of the problem in America today. The churches have changed the way they preach, the way they approach the culture around them, and we've stopped being declarative, and we've gone into a conversational style where everybody sort of gets to contribute so that we're all equal and every truth is, is, is equal truth. <laughs> that's a stupid statement in and of itself. Uh, every truth is an equal truth, and the result is... I believe the church has ceased in many cases to be the salt and the light of the earth. Uh, sometimes the salt poured in an open wound hurts. So there are declarative statements. So what I'm going to talk about tonight when it comes to creation is a declarative statement. I believe, and I think the scripture authenticates that the world was created, everything that there is was created in six literal 24-hour days. Amen. I understand that that kind of a statement rattles anybody who is a scientist because they have lived in a world where they have been told that it's over millions and billions of years through chance and time that everything has come to be what it is today. And that's the most ridiculous kind of thinking I can even possibly imagine. There isn't anything in this world that doesn't have a designer that comes into existence or an engineer or somebody to guide the process or to make the process happen. Your watch just doesn't fall out of a watch factory and suddenly become a watch. All the parts fall out of a watch factory and all the parts come together as a watch. There is a creator. He created everything there is. He did it in six literal days. Now, that's a, that's a declarative statement. Uh, and, and scientists don't like that. You remember the first, time, the first time I ever remember hearing about evolution was in the eighth and ninth grade. 
I went to Tony Elementary School from the first to the seventh grade. That sounds stupid as well. You know, who goes to the seventh grade to elementary school? But that's the way it was where we were. Was it that way here? No. You know, in my bracket? No. Okay, so we all are a lot smarter here than we were. And first grade to seventh grade, and then when you got out of seventh grade, you went to, you went to high school, eighth grade to, to senior year. Eighth graders were pre-freshmen. Uh, ninth graders were freshmen right on through to seniors. And, of course, after my ninth grade year, I moved 20 miles with my family outside of the city of Atlanta out to Stockbridge, and I, I finished up in 74 at Stockbridge High School. But the first time I ever remember a serious discussion about evolution, I don't think I ever heard it at the church that we attended. If we did, I don't remember it. And we didn't talk about that in my family. That just wasn't a common subject. We talked about Christ, talked about his word. We didn't talk about evolution. We didn't talk about creation. Those things weren't as big back then as they are today. But I remember that for the first time in eighth and ninth grade biology class, I don't even know the name of the teacher. I have no idea what his name was. And by the way, both years he didn't teach on evolution. He taught one semester on it, then he moved on to other subjects. But I remember that semester him teaching on evolution. And once he got through explaining to us what evolution was and how it's millions and billions of years and time and chance and everything came together this way and all of science has proven this. This is all true. Science has proven it all. This has all evolved to who we are. I didn't really think much about it until he made one statement at the end of that semester. He said, now there is another explanation for the origins of life and things, and I would encourage you to talk to your parents or to your pastor or minister about it. Now, I want to be honest with you. You could not say that in modern American school, the modern American school system. You could not say that today. But he picked something in my, in, in my mind that caused me to, to recognize You know, there is a major contrast, but today, those who want to believe in creation have decided to to, to, uh, dumb it down into something that sort of blends evolution and creation together. You got people that believe in things like uh, the gap theory. Between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-1, you know, God puts it, makes everything. And Genesis 1-2, then he brings order to all those things. Between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there are millions and billions of years that existed. And Hebrew scholars, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but Hebrew scholars who have studied the passage say you can't break the text that way. You can't break the text between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 and put millions and billions of years. But what are we doing? We're trying to find a way to appease modern-day science and say we can, get this into the, we can get this into the Genesis 1, Genesis 2 creation story by putting it into the gap between verse 1 and verse 2. It just doesn't work. It, it just does, that's a declarative statement. Did you hear it? It just doesn't work. Uh, you have people who talk about the day-age theory. You know the day-age theory? These weren't literal 24-hour days. These were, these were thousands and thousands and millions maybe of years. Every day, I mean, day one wasn't just a 24-hour day. It was thousands and millions of years. And day two, not, not a 24-hour day, thousands and millions of years. And three and four and five. And somehow in that day-age theory, you're able to interject uh, you're able to interject evolution and push evolution into the creation story. Have you ever stopped to think about uh, plants appearing and being in the dark for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? 
I don't know if you know this or not. I'm, I'm joking, being sarcastic, you do. It, plants require sunlight. You know that, don't you? They require sunlight. And what would you do if you had sunlight for thousands and thousands of years and then you had thousands and thousands of years of darkness? It just simply doesn't work. Today, a more popular of, of the uh, theories where they're trying to, to combine evolution with creation and try to make them work together is what they call the framework theory. Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 are just a framework, a literary framework. We're not supposed to take them actually. We're not supposed to take them literally. They're just a literary framework. And they go through and talk about this literary framework that you know, in, in literature, he's, he's not being actual in what he says. He doesn't really mean 24 hours a day. It, it, you're supposed to read it in a liter, literary fashion, and you're supposed to take something from it. There is a God. And we have developed, and it's not new today, but we, we have developed a theistic evolution where we're trying to force evolution into creation. So let me just make a declarative statement to all of you scientists in the room. God created in six literal days, 24-hour days, everything that there is in the earth isn't as old as you say it is. You cannot, Mr. Scientist, Mrs. Scientist, you cannot observe creation, you cannot test creation, and you cannot repeat creation. So you cannot speak definitively about the origins of things because you weren't there, you can't test it, and you can't reproduce it. All you can do is guess about creation. Now, let's just be clear. That's not who we are as a church. Uh, people, we have people in our church who believe differently. So let me stop here and let me just say this. Uh, I'm not questioning anybody's salvation. Not at all. If you believe in a theistic evolutionary approach uh, or some other framework kind of an approach to the, to the, to the, the text of Genesis 1 and 1 and 1 2, I'm not questioning whether you know Christ as your Savior. But I am questioning whether you understand the authority of the Bible or not. And when the Bible speaks, you take the word of God for what it says. And if science contradicts it, science is wrong. Science is not God. God is God. And if science doesn't match up with what God says, then science has got some learning to do. You like that Southern English? Got some learning to do. They got some learning to do. They don't know as much as they think they know. God created in six literal 24-hour days everything there is. It is not a matter of time and chance over millions and billions of years. You didn't come from some lower life form. You, out of nothing came everything. Do you realize how, how ridiculous that sounds? Out of nothing came everything. Well, where did the nothing come from? <laughs> I mean, out, out of nothing came everything. I got news for you. My relatives aren't. They might, you might think some of them are, but my relatives aren't a bunch of monkeys. God created man in his image. Not the animals, not the animal kingdom. He created man in his image. Those are declarative statements. So we got people that don't believe what I believe, what our church believes, and they want to discuss it. Let's sit down, let's, let's have a discussion. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Um, first of all, you're not the pastor I am. This is a settled issue. It's a settled issue. You say, why is it a settled issue? This is not a classroom. If we were in a 
A classroom, we could sit down and we could debate the different ideas and we would have a little discussion about this, that, and the other and we set up people on both sides of the issue and we both debate each other about the issue. This isn't a classroom. This is a church and we are on a mission. And the mission is to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of that kind of discussion only confuses us when it comes to our mission. Besides, as the pastor, I get to sort of be a part of By the way, the church believed this before I got here. But I sort of get to determine, you know, on these key issues what we believe. And we believe in the creation of the earth in 24 literal, day, or 24 literal hours, six days, 24 hours, that God created everything that there is. And on the seventh day, he rested. And here's the thing. Have we gotten to, have we gotten to Psalm 8 yet? You like the declarative stuff, look around you. Look around you. Here's your problem. If you believe that you can somehow create, somehow squeeze evolution into creation, here's your problem. You're going to have to answer to a whole bunch of scriptures, and you're going to have to redefine what they mean. Let me just stop here for a minute. It's, it's 10 minutes till 7. Um, this, this, is the same issue, this is the same issue that comes up when we talk about Calvinism. So let me just be clear. Let me just make my declarative statement. I'm not a Calvinist, and I'm not an Arminian. And I don't appreciate the intellectuals who say you have to be one or the other. You mean there was nobody who believed the Bible and what it says before Calvin or Arminius? Are we that dumb? You mean until Calvin came along or Arminius came along, we couldn't figure out, they couldn't figure out what the Bible means? And then you get to the Calvinist perspective of the Bible and it says, well, God so loved the world. But the world doesn't really mean the world. The world really means those that are God's favored ones and God's chosen ones. And, you know, he's talking about the world or they have some other kind of crazy explanation that God loves everybody, but there are some that he's going to save. He doesn't really love everybody in the same way we think he loves everybody, but he loves those that he's chosen in a special way. Oh, come on. You see what they do? They end up I don't believe in, if you, if, you define, if you define them as I traditionally hear them, I don't believe in any of the five points of Calvinism, nor do I believe in the five points of Arminius. I just believe what the Bible says. I believe God loves every single person in this world, and anybody who puts his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can, uh, can, can become a child of the living God, a possessor of eternal life. And God didn't say, I'm going to take you and take you and miss you and take you and take you and take you, but I'm going to leave everybody else out. And it's not a matter of what just I believe. That's what the scripture says. Unless you redefine terms. Unless you change the meaning of the words to something that no normal person reading the Bible would ever take it that way. So you've got to be some kind of special person who's gone to seminary and who knows Hebrew and Greek to be able to read your Bible, to be able to read the words like you're supposed to be reading the words. I don't believe God gave us his word just for the seminary graduates. 
I believe God intends for you to be able to read his word and know what it means, and you don't even have to know Greek or Hebrew to know what it means. Are you all still with me? These are declarative statements. I'm probably making a few enemies this evening. I don't mean enemies in the sense that they're just people ruffling feathers. These are declarative statements. They don't talk about these things in the average church today. Just, we, we love everybody. We just, everybody, yeah, come on. Let's not talk about any of these things. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4 says we're to be united around the faith that body of doctrine that we hold dear. Unity isn't unity if there's not the truth that's uniting us together. It's just a semblance. It's not real unity. It's, it's, it's all, a, it's all a, a facade. It's not real. Well, let's not tell anybody what we believe. Let's not tell anybody what we think about these key issues in the culture today. Let's all be quiet about these matters. Let's not make any declarative statements. We don't want to upset anybody's feathers. We want to make everybody happy when they come to church. Take down all the crosses. We don't want to sing about the blood of Jesus. Let's not do anything to offend anybody. I've got news for you. The gospel is offensive to people that are in their sins. That's how conviction works. That's how conviction works. So if you don't redefine the terms, then when you read Genesis 1-1, it means what it says. Day means day. 24-hour uh, days. God created everything there was. You don't, have to, you don't have to squeeze evolution into it. You just believe what God says, and maybe, maybe eventually science will catch up. Here, here's the problem. Your kids are in a classroom. They will never hear a teacher say, there is another explanation to origins. Not in today's culture, not in today's science classroom, not in today's biology room, not in today's college, even our own beloved Marshall University. You will never hear those words. And our kids get out of school, taught that evolution is the only way that life came into existence, and they seemingly have been proven, it has seemingly been proven that that's the way that life came into existence and they don't know that you don't have to check your brain at the door in order to be a follower of Jesus. You can believe in creation. Some of the most brilliant, I don't know a lot of brilliant people, well, I, maybe all of you are brilliant. I know you. I don't know a lot of brilliant people, but I know a lot of brilliant people who believe in creation who are scientists. And they're not trying to squeeze evolution into the creation account and call it day age or call it the gap theory or call it the framework theory or call it whatever else you want to call it. Just read it and take it at its word, God at his word. If you don't do that, you've got a problem with the rest of your Bible. Just look with me for a few moments. Just go with me for a few moments. Go back to chapter Act, chapter Act, chapter 17 of Acts. I'm hurrying. When I do that, I stumble over my words. Acts 17. Look at verses 24 to 26. Listen to what he says. I did this uh, last year when I was reading through my Bible. I started noting all of the passages that deal with creation in some fashion. They may not go through everything related to creation, but they all deal with creation in some fashion. Your Bible is loaded with verses of Scripture dealing with creation. 
You're either going to have to redefine terms like the Calvinists and Arminians do. You're either going to have to redefine terms or you're going to have to take creation for what it says and what it is. Notice he says, chapter 17, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. By the way, this is the sermon that uh, Paul is preaching at the Areopagus, and he's preaching about the unknown God. You got, this, you got all these gods out here. You, don't, you, know, you say you believe in all these gods. You got one here, this, the, this uh, idol to the, to, to the unknown God. And so he uses that as a springboard. He's not giving any credence to the rest of their gods. He's using this particular idol as a springboard to, to introduce them to the one true God. He goes on in verse 25, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. You think God needs something? Since he gives life, well, he does what? He gives life to all or gives to all life, breath, and all things. Verse 26, and he who has made from one blood, hey, do you realize that the framework theory says that Adam and Eve were not the first living human beings? Adam and Eve were God's chosen ones out of the living human beings who really didn't have souls until God breathed into them the breath of life and they became living souls. And, and that's how we ended up with the Adam and Eve story. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not real smart, but I, I, I just take God at his word. Verse 26, he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined. Who determines their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings? I got news for you. God does. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Who oversees all this? Who brings it all into existence? It's God that does that. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Brother Bill, can I have next Sunday night? Romans chapter 1, notice verse 20. For since the evolution of the world, is that what it says? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Let me ask you a question. You think God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in the evolutionary process? You don't see God's... You, you don't see God's uh, uh, invisible attributes, you see time and chance, uh, the survival of the fittest. Uh, you, you see things that they tell you are the, the way it happens, but you don't see God's invisible attributes in the evolution. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood, and I notice, by the things that are made. Uh-oh, uh-oh. You mean Adam and Eve and the animals and all the grass and the trees and the rain clouds over us? which weren't rain clouds in the early days until sin entered the world. But you understand until, until uh, the flood, I should say. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But then what does man do? Verse 21, because although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he goes on to talk about the moral decline. We're living in America, the moral decline in America. This, this is a country in moral decline. Of course, if you only came from a monkey, 
you know, you can be whatever you want to be and you can love whoever you want to love because we're just animals in the beginning. I got good news for you. You're a whole lot more than an animal. You're, you're a divine creation of the almighty God. Look, look back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. These are declarative statements. Colossians chapter 1. Look at uh, uh, let's, let's start in verse 13. That's really earlier than we need to, but let's start in verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Aren't we thankful for that? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Thank God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible. Now, we go back to it, verse 16. For by him all things, not some things, not no things, all things were what? They were created. You say, well, in the framework theory, God just sort of, he, he sort of guides the evolutionary process. That isn't what he says. He says they were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were, he didn't say evolved, he didn't say he guided the process, created through him and for him. And he does more than that, verse 17, he is before all things and in him, listen, in him all things consist. It's the idea that things hold together because of him. So I'm going to throw something out to you. It's 7 o'clock, so I'm not through yet. Uh, I'm going to throw something out to you. We watch what's going on in America today. We see all the, you know, the fires and we see the floods and we got the environmentalists that tell us that we're destroying the planet. Have we ever stopped to ask the question, is God judging us? Is God saying to America, you've turned your back on me? You've walked away from me. Have you ever asked that question? You ever heard anybody ask that question? Yeah. Notice, if you will, I've got a couple more places I'm going to take you. you know, look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Revelation. We spent how many, uh, how many weeks in Revelation? In the, in the book on Revelation, we're working on it. It's out of my hands. We're working on it as fast as we can. We're just normal people. We're not book creators. So it will be there eventually, so just be patient. It's coming. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, look at verse 11. Uh, John says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you guided the evolutionary process of all things. Is that what it says? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Or look over at chapter 10 for just a moment. This will be my last one. Chapter 10, verse 6. Let's get with verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who guided the evolutionary process. Don't read Genesis 1-1 like it really says it. That's all just a framework. It's a literary framework. He wasn't intending to give us science about how everything came into existence. He's just giving you a little story to tell you about some things that you need to know. But really, all of it was evolving in the process. That's not what he says. Who created heaven and the things that are in it, 
the earth, the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no, there should be delay no longer. Can I just ask you a question? Who created everything? Who does the Bible say created everything there is? And if Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 are just a literary framework and Adam and Eve really didn't exist, or if they existed, they were taken out of some kind of a humanoid kind of existence of thousands and millions of other people that were living and dying through all of the process, and God chose Adam and Eve to become the first representatives of what would become his redemptive plan. They became living souls. I don't find that anywhere in my Bible. And, and here's the thing. I, I've been told this so many times. I, I almost, I, I get, you know, at almost 65, you get tired of hearing some things. You just get tired of hearing some things. Here's what I keep hearing. Well, if you don't teach that there may be another explanation to your children, when your children grow up and can think for themselves, they will reject the Bible because you taught them the story of creation, but you didn't teach them the truth about the evolutionary process that brought what they call creation into existence. No, I suggest to you this. I suggest to you that as long as you tell your children that science is God rather than God being God, that you're undermining the faith from the very beginning of their lives, and you start out showing them that you don't have to check your brain at the door. The evidence, the, the, the evidence, uh, uh, the evidence is the same for all of us. How the evidence is interpreted is what makes the difference. If you approach it from a purely secular, uh, from a purely unbiblical perspective, you might arrive at, you might arrive at a conclusion of evolution. I mean, you don't have a God in your, your worldview anyway. But if you believe God and you've trusted in his son, the Lord Jesus, and you believe the Bible is the inspired and errant, infallible word of the living God, then you don't start from a no-God perspective. You, you start from a God perspective, and you say, you know, the evidence is the same. And you look at the evidence, and while there will be for both evolution and creation things we cannot explain, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of things that you can explain clearly and obviously and easily and show science supports the creation account. Let's stop undermining our children's uh, confidence in the Bible. I believe the Bible is accurate and true from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. I don't have a problem with what the Bible says. And until parents stop having a problem with what the Bible says and stop letting teachers educate their children in things where they should be educating their children. Amen. Our children are going to continue to have their, their foundation undermined. The, 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 the creation account, uh, the Tower of Babel, um, the, the story of uh, the ark, <laughs> came to my mind, the story of the ark, those aren't just fanciful little stories that are fairy tales that just... Oh, isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? We used to tell, tell the kids these little cute stories. No. That's what happened. That's the truth. And we take God at his word. Brother Bill, can I have next Sunday night? And then I'll, I'll bump you one more week after that to Psalm 16. Will you be here that week? Thank you. Next week we will look at, did I just make some declarative statements? Yeah. <laughs> 
I just want you to know this is where we stand. This is who we are. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what you have to teach if you teach in this ministry. You don't get to teach theistic evolution or the day-age theory or the gap theory. You teach the truth of the creation account. That's what we teach. That's who we are. That's what we believe. And that makes some people angry. <laughs> 